successful economy is over time corroded by a growing layer of restrictions. Each set of regulations imposes an unintended and unanticipated cost or outcome. This necessitates further rules and government oversight. Eventually the entire system becomes so overwhelmed that it either grinds to a halt or there is a sudden and dramatic economic liberalisation. That's what Damien Grant wrote in his latest Sunday Star Times column. Damien is a liquidator, a political commentator, and a member of the Taxpayers' Union, so we've invited him to join us for this episode of Taxpayer Talk. Thanks for coming, Damien. Thank you. Damien, you describe in your latest piece what sounds almost like an inevitable cycle of growing government restrictions, uh, regulations, taxes, followed by either some kind of collapse or radical reform. How do you think uh, this model fits into New Zealand's history? Does it apply to us? And at what stage in this process are we now? Well, I think it does apply to us. And I think it, it is historically a trend. You've seen it on, on massive mega scales, like you've seen in, in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And, and we've, we saw very controlled command economies come apart. We've seen it in other places in the West, places like Great Britain under Margaret Thatcher, um, in Australia under Paul Keating, and of course here with the 1984 Roger Douglas reforms, where you have an economy that is so tightly controlled and regulated that at some point it, it might, one of two things must happen. It either collapses, and we, we saw that in places like Venezuela and historically in, in Argentina as well, or we see a dramatic breakout, and that's certainly what happened in, in, in 1984. Um, and we haven't really gone back to the pre-1984 level of controls. And I don't know whether we are going to go down that track, but if we keep going down the track that this government has indicated, then we are going to end up back in a 1984-type scenario where one of those two things will happen. And I think in New Zealand, the most likely outcome is that, because we are seeing a move towards rent control, that's, be, that's been indicated. Firstly, um in terms of our current position, though, surely we're not that bad. We still rank very highly in terms of ease of business, uh, uh, economic freedom, tax systems, and so on. Is it a serious threat that we could end up in a 1983, 1984 type situation? Yes, because it's a direction that we're traveling. And there's two things to indicate that that travel, that direction will continue. One is the widespread public support for this sort of direction. Part of the reason why Grant Robinson is not pushing back on the idea of rent controls is that the rent controls, there's very little public pushback. And you see some of the people in the property sector saying, oh, look, we might need to increase um, rents. Grant Robinson is turning around and saying, well, that's a landlord problem. And the public seem to be on board with that. The public seem to be okay with increasing forms of government regulation. And even the National Party don't really seem to be fundamentally ideologically committed to the free market and perhaps the way we would um, hope them to be. So I think that as a result of that, I think we, we have a long way to go. And I say in the column, when we're a long way from the Maldunist era, I don't think we're there yet, but we are heading in that direction. And if we keep going in that direction, three to four to five years down the track, then at some point we are going to come to that that point. And that point is where we, we, we either fall over or there'll be a great liberalisation. And I think that's where we, are, where we are going unless we change course. Mm. And with rent control, probably the reason why it's such a good example of this creep of regulation is the history of the, of the housing debate, right? You could say regulation has begat regulation. 
uh, starting with supply-side restrictions, the red tape and the RMA, which um, I guess at some point down the line uh, prompted Grant Robertson to announce the changes to tax systems that he has uh, this yeah, month. Yeah, and we, we, we never seem to cotton on that the, the reason why we have a problem is because we have laws that prevent the supply of housing. We have the Building Code, we have the Resource Management Act, we have land use restrictions at a, at, a, at a council level. We have all of these barriers in the way of building cheap and affordable houses. I made the comment before that it's actually illegal to build affordable housing in New Zealand. The, the law and the, and the consenting process simply will not allow it. Um, and so you get to this, you get to this point that the, the state sitting there, and, and the state has contributed to this problem in two ways. One, the loose monetary policy, which if you think about um, uh, a rental as an annuity, and that's what it is for an investor, it's an annuity, then the price of that annuity jumps as interest rates falls. And so that's driving part of it. And then the other, the flip side of that problem is the constraints on supply. And so the the, the state never seems to accept the that, that it's, its regulation is causing the problem in the first place. And so they keep adding on more and more regulation to control the problem mm. that the earlier set of regulation has uh, has driven. But housing, although housing is a highly problematic area, it's still a relatively small part of the, of the total New Zealand economy. So we can screw up on housing and everything else is going to continue to turn. So I don't think that the problem is how and housing in itself is going to cause um, a great revolt. But we are starting to see, you know, there's some rumours in the moment at the moment about potentially in the electricity market and other yes. such sectors. So there is a there is a general move by this government in a more micro regulatory session sense and fashion. And if this government continues in that vein, then I think we we are heading towards a Muldoon's type crisis, not in the next year or two, but that's definitely the path that we're going. Yes, but it's not it's not inevitable. I mean, I don't. Um, th- there may well be an internal revolution within inside this government. I think Grant Robinson is, is smart enough to understand he might be heading down the wrong path. There may be a change of government in two and a half years. I'm, I'm not saying that that's, that's inevitable in this sense. But if you have a look at the way that this government is currently progressing, it does appear that that's the way it's progressing. Yes. And if it keeps going down that path, we're going to have a problem. Just to illustrate it more clearly, just thinking about this energy uh, question, so it was this week that the Minister of Energy suggested she would be putting the companies on notice for uh, increasing wholesale energy prices. Now, uh, it's as though she's not reflecting on whether this could have been a consequence of her ban on energy exploration. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, and 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 so it's it's kind of a you're seeing the similar problem emerge in the housing market as you're seeing in the in, in the gas market. You know, it, it's it's identical. And then you're having a look at the um, the climate commission and and all of their regulatory oversight that they want to to go. And so if we adopt the the recommendations that Rod Carr is talking about, there is this massive swamp of regulation that that is coming down the pipe. And all areas of New Zealand commercial activity is going to find itself subject to increasingly complex regulation. I mean, you even have to just in the in the normal cut and thrust of, of business, which most, most people won't have much experience with. You got things like the anti-money laundering legislation, which is a massive commercial uh, headache for most people in business. And you know, and let's not forget that was in, imposed by the previous mm-hmm. national government. So you you are seeing this regulatory creep that just keeps growing and growing and growing and 
maybe you know maybe it'll be different this time. I mean, where where have you heard that? But I, I'm I'm not convinced that it will. But there there is a, that that comment I can't remember who said it. There's yes. a lot of ruin in the nation. We could do this for a long time. Yes. Um, and just to drive it drive it home, when we talk about rent control or price controls in the energy market, we're not arguing that this is the big, bad, ultimate consequence. It's the fact that there are further consequences that flow on from that. If you are a, uh, a rental housing provider or even an energy services provider and a form of price control is instituted, what is the, the type of reaction that uh, you may see in that market? Um, so you're saying if you're if you're a property, well, saying, let's say let's say property for for example, if you're a rental um, services provider and the government institutes rent control. Well, let's let's because there's one aspect of the of the uh, housing market that I don't think has really been fully explored. We are seeing at the moment a bit of a, a, a construction boom, right? So there's there is a lot of construction going on relatively compared to the to recent years, although certainly um, not a lot compared to the 1970s. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a construction boom going on. Part of the problem with the housing market at the moment is this. We are seeing a construction boom at the moment. And although it's certainly high in relative to the, the last 10 years, it's, it's nowhere near as high relatively to what was in the 1970s, I mean, more of a, a free market approach. But we are seeing a boom in construction, and part of the part of what is driving that is high house prices. So, if you're a developer and you're looking at the cost of land, which has been growing, the the regulatory cost in terms of the building code and other bits and pieces, you are seeing this great overlay of costs. But the price of housing has gone up twenty percent in the last year, so that the inflation of house prices is more than compensating for all of the regulatory burdens that the state's putting in the way. If the state is actually successful in driving down house prices by regulating rents and, and, and other crazy activity, it's actually going to have some really perverse effects because if the if the end price of the house starts to fall, then the developer suddenly looks at a situation mm-hmm. where all of those regulatory constraints on supply mean that the cost of building their house is higher than what they're going to sell it for, and that will end up having a flow-on effect of negative construction. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's a if the government actually was to solve the house pricing problem, house price inflation problem, that would actually create a construction problem because the one thing they are not doing is that they are not addressing supply. And and you know you go back and you have a look at Kiwi Build. Why did Kiwi Build fail? Kiwi Build failed for exactly the same reason that Fletcher's and, and GJ Gardner are not building vast amounts of houses because there is a regulatory Im- impediment in the way that even the state couldn't get them couldn't re- resolve. I I wonder if there's a problem where so many commentators are rightly pointing out that we have a housing crisis, that the government actually struggles to conceive that things could get worse and that they their actions uh, could actually make things worse. Yes, and I and and because the mindset of this government is that they they believe genuinely and honestly in the power of the state to they have solve to do problems. something. Yep, and they, this is something. Therefore, they will do this. Yep, and. And to admit that the problem is caused by the state is kind of an ideological red line that they can't cross. And so they have painted themselves into a corner that the solution to the housing problem must be state intervention. The solution cannot be deregulation because deregulation has been demonised. And so in some sense, this this current administration is caught. I mean, if they they actually wanted to solve the problem, the problem. I mean, you know, a very simple solution would be 
every potential new homeowner gets a you know three hundred thousand dollar grant from the state. I mean, probably I think I worked it out somewhere across about one and a half billion dollars to do that. A five thousand people ticket. Um, that at least would solve the 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 problem for new home uh, buyers. Yes, but I mean, struggle to see the taxpayers union pushing that one. <laughs> no, um, but it would perversely probably be cheaper than the, uh, the the absolute insanity that we have at the moment. Uh, but see, and there's another problem as well. So if you are middle-aged, like, you know, a bit older than middle-aged like me, and you're saying, okay, I've got some capital. What do I do with that capital? Okay, so if um, you put the money in the share market, well, share market's inflated. Um, uh, you no point putting the money in the bank because you, the, you know, you, you're getting effectively zero, zero interest rates when you look at inflation. And so housing becomes quite an attractive option. And so that's what people have been responding to. They have saying, okay, I've got money, I borrow some cash and I invest in housing. The state's now changing the rules of, of the game. And so the other the other flow-on effects is where do those people start investing their money? And and the answer is probably in an alpaca and goat farms in the South mm. Island, because we've, we've, we've seen that sort of stuff before, where people start to look for um, a return on, on their capital. And yep. you have all of these perverse effects that of course then just necessitate further regulation on the correct provision of goat farms and you know we'll have alpaca regulations at that point down the line, yes. I'm sure. You spoke about this this red line that our current government cannot seem to bring itself to cross, uh, the idea of actually unwinding certain government interventions to solve some of these problems. Where does this ideology come from? Uh, is, is there something about New Zealand's history that um, just hasn't sunk in with our current leaders? Well... Let's go back and have a look at the 1984 reforms. The 1984 reforms were introduced by a Labour Party and by people That's who... That's so interesting. And and I'm not convinced that the likes of Richard Preble and Roger Douglas were committed to that ideology prior to their election. And if you did, if you read Richard Preble's book, I've Been Thinking, um, and, and including Roger Douglas's Unfinished Business, they, they articulate that that they came to this realisation after they got elected. So I actually think that there is a very long history in New Zealand of a belief in the state, of a desire that the state is there to keep us safe, and we we believe we believe that the state is fundamentally a good institution, and for so many New Zealanders, that's the case. We, we haven't had the experience of so many other cases where we have seen that state act in a particularly malicious or, or malevolent fashion as we've seen in so many other countries overseas. And so I think that that breeds a belief that the state can do good. A lot of the people who work for the state are legitimately honest, decent, good people who are attempting to do the right thing. Um, and I think that's what's driven it. I, I struggle to think of, and you even look at the ACT Party, I mean, the ACT Party, you know, it's full of libertarians, but if you look at their actual stated policy, I mean, that is their, their stated policies are certainly not libertarian. So I think there is a an inherent nature in the in New Zealand that we, we have a belief in government. Mm. We see government as being benign because most of New Zealand's history, the government has been benign. I find it remarkable that the indigenous population who have experienced the state not acting in a benign fashion. They have seen the state expropriate their land and go to war with them. I don't understand why the um, Maori community is, is looks to the state as a solution to their problems when so often the state has been a cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but nonetheless, that that is certainly the case. And so I think that belief in the inherent nature and goodness of the state and the people behind it leads to the belief that the state can actually solve those problems when when the the, the brutal example of reality is that they can't okay. exacerbate it. And you're saying that this uh, belief or even this culture within New Zealand politics is across a number of parties. Uh, take the John Key lead government. How do you think they fit into this cycle of regulation building? Did they actually wind it back? What well, anti-money laundering, brought in by John Key. Um, um, Resource Management Act, I believe, I believe that was brought in by the Key government. Um, no, that was Bolger, I think. Uh, mm. Well, they, they look, made noises about reforming it. Yeah, and, and they, they and, with Peter and, Dunn and, and they never did. They, no, it was the Maori Party they worked with. Um, the uh, so um, you have a look at John Key's government, and right at the very end, I mean, what was Bill Inglis talking about when he was prime minister? He was talking about micro interventions at the individual level to solve the problems of of, of individuals who got into trouble. The even the the National Party or perhaps especially the National Party, believes that there is a role of the state in shaping society. And so both National and Labour believe that the role of the state is to make and shape the society in the way that they want it to be. It's just that National and Labour have slightly different ideas of what the state of, of what society should be. They both believe it is the legitimate role of the state to shape society. And that therein lies the, the, the problem. Um, we don't have a tradition in this country. You have a look at um, certainly in the Thatcher era and, and maybe in the Reagan era and a little bit perhaps in, in Donald Trump. There was a belief on, on some parts of the right that the state was inherently the problem. Hmm. We simply don't have that tradition in New Zealand. And I don't believe we've ever had the tradition in New Zealand that we view the state through a hostile lens. And if you are one of the um, minority, very, very small minority of New Zealanders. There's seven one, of us, I understand. Yes, one of these tortured, uh, small government-minded individuals the current situation with COVID-19 uh, can hardly be making you optimistic in terms of the changing role of the state. Uh, we've seen huge expansions in the way the government intervenes into the economy and our everyday lives. And even at the Taxpayers Union, we've actually argued some of this uh, intervention was justified. Uh, take the wage subsidy, for example, which kept people tied to their jobs. Don't you agree that in a time of crisis, that really is a role for government uh, to intervene? Or are you suggesting that there was actually an alternative uh, response that the government could have taken to this crisis situation? Uh, the answer in two parts. So the first part is, if you have a look at the attitude of the wider New Zealand population, the government's response was correct because the wider New Zealand population wanted the government to react. The government did react, and the reaction was successful. Uh, I So the alternative was to do nothing and allow COVID to do its work, and there would have been somewhere between two and 5,000 dead if we use Sweden as the metrics, mm -hmm. and you can, you can argue about the, the numbers and so forth. I would have support. I would have supported the second approach, and I supported it for two reasons, neither of which are acceptable or palatable to the wider New Zealand public. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the first is that, in my view, we played a game of Russian roulette. We took a massive risk, and the risk, and I think the risk is still there. The risk is that by doing what we were doing, by locking the country down, by by printing one hundred billion dollars, we we 
we ran the risk of tanking the economy and wrecking everything that we've built up since 1984 reforms in terms of fiscal and monetary discipline. We ran the risk of, of, of destroying our economy and, and our infrastructure. Now, the risk might be small. Say the risk was 3 or 4%. Um, but we were still paying Russian roulette. And in my view, the risk wasn't wasn't worth it. Yeah. Um, but the other reason why I would uh, oppose it is, is a very libertarian philosophical sense, is that you are imposing restrictions and freedom on me to benefit somebody else. And and philosophically, I am opposed to that. But I but I accept, look, that's that's simply not something that the wider New Zealand public has any appetite for. Okay. And and given that I, you know, I live in the country, I need to accept that 99.978% of the population yeah. don't share that that viewpoint. But I think the I think the one thing that the wider public does not appreciate is the risk that we took. And I think it's we are still taking it. Can, can I make a devil's advocate argument from actually a libertarian perspective though? Um, this, the intervention that we saw uh, relatively early in the in the COVID pandemic in terms of both lockdowns and the rollout of the wage subsidy, even if uh, you are concerned about those risks associated with it, would you not at least concede that if we hadn't done that, there would be a political likelihood we would do a version of the same thing a few weeks later or a few months later to a more intense degree that would actually upend our economy and our lives in a more uh, disruptive way? Yes, but then you're 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 arguing about the least worst outcomes. I am. Yeah. So you know, do we have compulsory blood donations or compulsory kidney donations? You know, I'm 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 philosophically opposed to both. If you're saying that I have to choose, I'll choose compulsory blood donations over compulsory kidney donations. But I think that they're both immoral and both wrong. Uh, so yes, I. I, I understand the argument, and I also concede the point that the, the wider New Zealand public very much supported what the government did. The wider New Zealand public believes that the state is fundamentally a benign and benevolent organisation, and as a consequence, there was a huge amount of support for what this government did. And you know, from my own perspective, whilst I thought the lockdown was philosophically wrong, I still followed its dictates because, okay, if we're going to pay the price... I at least want the benefit of the lockdowns to work, mm. and so I got on board in terms of in, in terms of that. But I, the one thing that I think that we have not appreciated is the risk that we have taken, and let's not forget hyperinflation is still sitting out there as a risk. And the one thing that the well, the other thing that we haven't really talked about um, is a large part of this housing crisis is a direct result of our COVID response. So. Part of the reason why we had a 20% inflation in the house prices last mm-hmm. year was because the government was printing vast amounts of money. And where did that money go? The money found its way indirectly and indirectly into the housing market. And so we have now locked a generation out of the housing market as a response to COVID-19. That was probably the best possible outcome that we could have expected. A collapse in the value of our currency and hyperinflation is a small risk that we took yes. as a consequence. Um, and in my view, it wasn't worth the risk Obviously, not everybody agrees with that. Yes. yeah. And seeing as we've kind of circled back now, I should say I wasn't intending to go all the way down into the COVID route, but it is actually, I think, a fascinating example to figure out how to weigh up uh, these principles and how, how to actually step back, as I think you were trying to do, and answer the question, uh, how could we have alternatively responded to this? Um, but back into housing, so we've seen COVID-19, um, money printing, it's, it's, it's an intervention that you, you argue has led to more intervention, at least in the sense that the government has decided uh, to respond with uh, 
removing interest deductibility for rental housing, an extended right line test. Now landlords are reacting to that by saying they're going to put up rents and the government's implying that it would consider rent control in response. So my question is how bad does it have to get? How many more steps are there in this process? Because I look around and I don't actually see a Polish shipyard in New Zealand. Life still seems pretty good. Uh, do things have to actually become a crisis in order for us to change direction? Yes, they do. And you're right. And so I say in the column, we are a long way from the modernist era, but we are heading relentlessly in that direction. And I don't see in the so I don't see in the National Party a clear ideological desire to move substantially in a different direction. Mm. They are not they they might undo the bright line reform tests and they might undo some other bits and pieces. If Bill English had been Prime Minister last year, we would have had a fundamentally almost identical response, I think, to mm -hmm. to what would have happened. We would have had the the COVID lockdown and we would have had the money printing and then we would have had the vast spurge of, of, of house price inflation. Would Bill English have reacted in the in the same or similar way as Grant Robinson in terms of the regulation of house pricing? Maybe not, but he would have he would have done other similarly interventionist type stuff. I think. And so I think in some sense there's there's almost a consensus between national and labor that it is the role of the state to solve the, um, the housing and, and other related crises. And so I think between national and labor, we are going to continue to go down this track. Um, an alternative to the two out to the two options that I've outlined, although is Japan. We have seen in Japan since the uh, early 1990s massive money printing, massive deficit spending and an increasing overlay of regulation. Now, Japan has not had either a massive crash, nor have they had massive um, liberalization. What Japan has had is two and now potentially three decades of economic underperformance. Mm -hmm. So they they were on, if you have a look at their performance in the uh, um, 70s and 80s, everybody was talking about them, that just in time, they were, they, they were on a, a path to overtake the United States in GDP, as they're talking about China now. Then the whole thing hit the skids in the early 1990s, and they have mm -hmm. never really recovered from that. Now, Japan is different from us because they have demographic issues that are quite separate from us. But um, They had the advantage of starting from a high base level, though, didn't they? Um, you mean in terms of their productivity, their, their productivity, and also the the capital that that they had built up. But they also have the the part of the reason, part of the argument why they haven't seen massive inflation, despite the vast amounts of quantitative easing that they have done, um, is the the velocity of money. If you think of the MV versus PQ for those with an economic background, um, if the government prints seventy trillion yen as they have done in Japan, um. And the old people literally take that cash and, and hide it and store it, then it's like they haven't done it. So if you imagine mm -hmm. in New Zealand, if Adrian Orr was to print $30 billion and, and, and he gives it to Bob Jones, and so Bob Jones takes that $30 billion and puts it in the cake tin to, to admire it, mm -hmm. then that's not going to have an inflationary effect, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's possible that the, because the velocity of money is not moving very fast, and it's certainly not in Japan, that that may not have an inflationary impact. But then if that the velocity ever starts to turn up, then we might potentially end up with the inflationary problem. Okay, well, this has been quite a pessimistic kind of podcast. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not really sure how to bounce back from it. So maybe I'll just double down. Um, I'm just going to quote a line from your podcast just to wrap this up. The current regime 
is operating on an assumption that those who propel our economy will continue to produce indefinitely, no matter how badly they are restricted. The regime is wrong. Thanks for joining us, Damien. Thank you.